Shabbat Shalom, everyone. All right. Let's see if my clicker is working. There it is. Today, we're going to continue to dig into this topic of baptism. And I want to begin today by really drawing from some traditional Jewish thought in regard to this subject in, in a similar way to what we did last week. And I want to open up this way because this is going to aid us. This is going to help us peel back layers of understanding so that we can truly understand, so that we have this significance of this baptism that is spoken of in the New Testament, so that we can feel the weight of it, the effect of it. And so, with that said, I want to open up with the, the following commentary. It is The context of this commentary is conversion. Okay, so we're talking about Gentiles being grafted into Israel, all right, from traditional Jewish thought. And this is what we read. Submerging in a pool of water for the purpose not of using the water's physical cleansing properties, but expressly to symbolize a change of soul is a statement at once deeply spiritual and immensely compelling. Now, one of the things that we had talked about last week, baptism is not about removing dirt from your skin. It is 100% spiritual. And notice what it specifically says here. It's a, it symbolizes a change of soul. There's a transformation, even in traditional Judaism, they recognize you go through a mikvah, there's a total transformation. You're not going to be the same. Continuing on in this commentary, no other symbolic act can, to can so totally embrace a person as being submerged in water, which must touch and cover every lesion, every strand of hair, every birthmark. Now, you, you, you think of that in, in regard to, you know, and we even hit on this a little bit last week, in regard to looking at baptism, and there, there, there's a division even within Protestantism today. And there's wonderful Christians on both sides. But there's a division of do we sprinkle or do we immerse? And I'm going to tell you, as you go back, you can see the history of Judaism. Look at it. It was never a question. It was fully immersion. It was full immersion, being totally immersed underwater. All right? It's not really the point I'm, I'm, I'm attempting to make here. Now, continuing on. Listen to this carefully. No other religious act is so freighted with meaning as this one. Let that sink down. Because if I'm going to do this, uh, this topic, this elementary principle of baptism, any justice today, you need to hear this statement. You need to feel the weight of it. I mean, to make a statement like that, you think of all the things that exist in the Jewish faith. All these things that you can participate in. And nothing has greater weight then mikvah. A mikvah in conversion, in the context of conversion, nothing has greater weight than that. Now take that and go to the New Testament. And we have one baptism, one mikvah talked about, and that is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah Yeshua. Now I ask you, is there anything greater in weight than that testimony? There is not. I mean, this is, an amaz this is amazing insight. And we need to feel this. Now it goes on, which touches every aspect of life and proclaims a total commitment to a new idea and a new way of life as it swallows up the old and gives birth to the new. Absolutely amazing. This is what baptism is. This is what you need to think of. If you haven't been baptized, you need to get baptized. And what you need to understand is this has to be at the forefront. 
of going in. You are making a commitment to the Lord, to a new idea. It's, see, it's to his ways. You walked in your old ways. You've been doing things according to your own manner, your own thoughts. You're confronted with so many situations in life. Every day, we're confronted with decisions to make. And that entire part of your life, you made it based on what you thought was best. But when you make commitment, you go through mikvah, now you do what God thinks is best. Total transformation, absolutely powerful. And you think of Yeshua uh, when he says, if anyone wants to come to me, let him pick up his cross and follow me. This is what he says in Psalm 85, we're to walk in those footsteps of righteousness. Now, continuing on, this is what we read. The water of the mikvah is designed to ritually cleanse a person from deeds of the past. Notice, not from dirt. It's from sin. And then it says this, the convert is considered by Jewish law to be like a newborn child. Oh my, where have you heard that before? The New Testament. This is exactly what the New Testament portrays in regard to mikvah. Moving on. In a sense, it is nothing short of the spiritual drama of death and rebirth cast onto the canvas of the convert's soul. Continuing, the mikvah is a spiritual womb. The human fetus is surrounded by water. It does not yet live. The water breaks in a split second, and the child emerges into a new world. Now listen, as soon as the convert immerses and emerges, he is a Jew in every respect. Think about that statement. As soon as he emerges out of the water, this Gentile, one who was cast off, one who's totally separated from Israel, has no part in Israel, the moment, the second he emerges out of the water, he has a new family. He has a new identity. A Jew who wouldn't have gave him two seconds of, of the day, who would not sit down and eat with him, will come and do so now. Think about that. That is just, that, that, that statement is so weighty and it is so true. If, you're, you want understanding, if you want to understand baptism, what it really means, let that sink down. Because what we need to be conveying as part of the gospel and the elementary principle is this message. If you want to be a part of God's family, God's kingdom, do you want to be redeemed? Do you want to have hope? It can be done. You go through the mikvah of Yeshua. And the moment you get out of those waters, see, it's not about I'm, 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 I'm going into the waters of this mikvah and then when I get out, I need to have this tingling sensation. I need to have some kind of emotion that I can identify with so that I know that this is super spiritual. No, it's a reality. You need to believe this. When you come out of the waters, say, I have a new family. I have new promises. I have forgiveness. These are the waters of hope. My old self is dead and now... I'm going to live a new life with a new identity. I want to take you into the New Testament and build on this. The Apostle Paul, which interestingly enough, Paul is talking to a Gentile. He's a convert. So this really fits quite well. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, how? Through now, I highlight this because last week we saw the, Peter use this very word, dia, in the Greek, where, 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 where uh, Peter's describing Noah was saved through dia, the waters. 
these waters, these baptismal waters, what we call the flood. Here the apostle Paul, Jew, he's a Jew, he is speaking to a Gentile and he says he saved us. Jew and Gentile through what? The washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. The washing of regeneration. What is being spoken of here? This is baptism. Now this gets even more fascinating in light of the commentary we just read. As we go to the Greek in this, and I'll put this up here, Pauline Genesia. And what does it mean? Really, it's this word regeneration that we have here. It means a new birth, rebirth. The washing of rebirth. This is, what, this is what it's always been in Jewish tradition. This concept of going through a mikvah is that you're born again. There's a new life. You know, and I share this a lot. But it, in the 70s, there was a movement known as the Jesus People Movement. It was a movement I got saved in. My parents got saved in this movement. A lot of people got saved who believe today in this movement. It's interesting, the Jesus People movement really had a motto. And it was really a motto that identified them. I don't know how else to say this. And what it was, they popularized a, a key term, born-again Christian. They, in, in a modern sense, they truly did popularize this term, born-again Christian. And what was fascinating, growing up, and, and, and my dad was heavily involved in, in ministry and doing all these things, you, you get to see this point blank, and you know you come across a Jesus people person that's been saved in this movement because you could go, they would go up and they'd start evangelizing and say, hey, do you believe in Jesus? And the person could respond, yes, I, I absolutely believe in Jesus. The next thing coming is, but are you born again? How many of you know what I'm talking about? You, you were a part of this, but are you born again? Well, I read the Bible, the, the comeback is, but are you born again? Well, I go to church, but are you born again? I pray, but are you born again? This is, it, it, it just kept coming, one thing after another. See, because it was used as a litmus test to divide, to know whether you are saved or you are not saved. They recognized, and authentically so, this movement recognized, we have to be born again. Why? Why did they utilize this? Why did they believe so strongly in this? And I'll tell you, it's because Yeshua himself set that precedent. In John 3, we read the following. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Yeshua by night. Now, not that this has anything to do with it, but that's very significant that Nicodemus is coming to Yeshua by night when no one can see him. And the reason he's doing this is because the Pharisees, you just go on a couple chapters in John, and they had come together and they said, if anyone confesses that Yeshua is the Messiah, is to be put out of the synagogue. So it's dangerous to be a Pharisee and to even ponder that Yeshua would be the Messiah. So Nicodemus, he comes to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Yeshua answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, listen to this, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See, this is why it became so popular to say, I'm a born again Christian. Are you born again? See, this is life and death. If you are not born again, you are not saved. You can say, well, I'm saved. Well, then you're deceived. Yeshua's words stand. 
Continuing on in verse 4, Nicodemus said to Yeshua, how can a man be born when he is old? This makes no sense. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Yeshua answered, uh, answered, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water, water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Life and death. You must be born. He's referring to his baptism. To be baptized. To be baptized in those waters. The waters of hope. And the spirit. And I just want to point this out. This concept of bringing together baptism with the spirit of God. It's thematic. This is a theme in the New Testament. We just read it in Titus. In Titus, the apostle Paul brought together the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. He brought these two concepts together. Last week, we we looked at Acts chapter 19, and you see Paul associates them too. He comes to them and says, hey, these these believers in Ephesus, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Well, we have not so much as heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And his question is, what were you baptized in? This makes no sense because the apostle Paul associated the baptism of Yeshua directly linked it to the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Okay, and so this is, this is what we see Yeshua doing. And, and he really, Yeshua, set the precedent for this. And we can see it right here. Now, with that said, I want to build on this. I want to take you back. I'm going to show you some uh, additional Jewish commentary uh, in regard to this concept of being born again and, and the effects of that. Now, listen to this. The baptism of the proselyte has for its purpose his cleansing from the impurity of idolatry. Sin. He's not cleansed from dirt, cleansed from sin. Now remember, this is Jewish tradition. And the restoration to the purity of what? A newborn man. He's born again. Continuing on. The bathing in the water is to constitute a rebirth. Wherefore, the ger, and the ger is a stranger. You find this word right in the Bible, in the Torah. It's the word we translate it as stranger. It's a Gentile, someone separate from Israel. The gear is like a child just born. And listen to this. And he must bathe in the name of God, Lashem Shemaim. Think about that statement. You want to understand baptism? You want to fully appreciate what you're going into as you go into these waters of hope and what is required? You must be baptized. You must bathe in the name of God. Fast forward in the New Testament and you look at the baptism, that is exactly what you must understand. There is no other name, Acts 4, by which we must be saved. It is only at the name of Yeshua. That baptism that we go in, we must be bathed in his name, in his testimony. It is not a legitimate baptism aside from that. And so this is an amazing statement. He must bathe in the name of God. And Leshem Shemaim is, 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 technically, it's in the name of heaven, which he goes on to explain. So, in the name of heaven, that is to assume the yoke of God's kingdom. This is what happens. So, when you go into these waters of hope, what are you taking on? You're taking the yoke of God's kingdom. And Yeshua says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Understand something. There is deep significance. You're to come into his baptism. And when you come into that baptism, you put the yoke of the kingdom of God 
on your shoulders, meaning the Torah, the commandments, you will not walk in your own ways anymore. This is your commitment. So assume the yoke of God's kingdom opposed upon him by one who leads him to baptism, or else he is not admitted into Judaism. In other words, you do not do this. You do not go through the mikvah in the name of God. If you do not, if you do not take the yoke of his kingdom upon you, you will never be admitted into Israel. You're still an outcast. This is absolutely a biblical fact in regard to the relation of the baptism that we read about in the New Testament in regard to Yeshua. This is the truth of it. We will never be admitted into Israel. So these things must happen. We must be baptized. That whole event had, had, must happen. All right. With that said, I want to continue on in the commentary. And we're going to get to the blessing part. See, because it's not just about getting everything right as you're going in and an understanding of what you're, what, what you're taking on but it's also what is going to be counted to you. We need to know the full picture. And listen to this commentary. The newborn Jew, meaning you were a Gentile, but you went through the mikvah, you literally declared, you called on the name of God, you were bathed in his name, you assumed the yoke, okay, and now you are a newborn Jew, just as Jewish as anyone else, takes on a Hebrew name. But a given name only is not sufficient to locate a person within Jewish tradition. When Jews sign legal documents or are called up to the Torah, their parents' names are appended to their Hebrew names to locate them in Jewish spiritual space. Now listen to this. A convert traditionally adopts Abraham and Sarah as spiritual parents and in legal situations is referred to as Ben Avraham Avenu, son of our father Abraham, or Bat Sarah Emenu, daughter of our mother Sarah. So get this. In other words, what this just said is that when you're a convert, you're this Gentile, and you come into the Jewish faith, what happens is you are ascribed new parents. See, because the way the Jewish people have always identified is, whose son are you? Well, you can even see in the New Testament, uh, Peter, he was Shimon Bar-Yona, Right? Shimon bar Yona. This is how he was. You are identified through your heritage. You are identified through your parents. This is mind-blowing to me that in the Jewish tradition, what they say, but when a Gentile comes in, he assumes the parents, Abraham and Sarah. These are his ascribed parents. You want to talk about heritage. You want to talk about blessing. This is what we're given. Listen to the words of Paul. For as many of you as were baptized into Mashiach have put on Mashiach. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all Echad and Messiah Yeshua. And if you are Mashiachs, listen to this, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. How powerful is that? This is the reality, what we just read in Jewish tradition, exactly what Paul just laid out. This is what happens when we go through this mikvah, these waters of hope in the Messiah Yeshua. We come out and we have blessed parents. And they're not just any parents. See, this is what you need to see. What does it say right at the end here? An heirs, according to the promise. What is an heir? It's the one who assumes the inheritance of his parents. He is an heir. And this is what you need to understand. 
When we go through these waters and we come out immediately, just as Jewish as any Jew, and through faith in the Messiah, Yeshua, going through these waters of hope, we have these parents that are ascribed to us. We become children of Abraham and Sarah. And that just doesn't mean, that's not lip service of just going, oh, you know, Abraham and Sarah are parents. No, this is what it means. And listen to me carefully because this is how important baptism is. As you come out, a child of Abraham, all those promises that were given to Abraham are yours. You have an inheritance. And this is what it's about. So you literally come out of these waters in the riches of the kingdom of God. It's powerful, powerful. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, that at that time, you, meaning Gentiles, were without Mashiach, being aliens, what? From the commonwealth. And that word, when you, uh, politeus, and I'll put it up here in the Greek, it means citizenship. No, you were not of Israel. You were not a citizen. But now, in Messiah Yeshua, okay, you were being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. All the promises that were given to Abraham and his descendants, they are not ours, no, not having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Messiah Yeshua, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Mashiach. I mean, this is what it's about. It's about literally coming out of the water to the riches of the kingdom of God and having them, knowing that they are ours. All those beautiful promises of an eternal inheritance, they fall upon you. I want to take you to the book of Acts and there are a couple passages that I want to look at today really reflect the intensity by which baptism was preached. An intensity that I look out today in the church and I do not find. I do not see it and it is terrifying. So what we're going to do is we're we're going to go and look at a, a few of these passages and what you're going to see is you're going to see pure urgency. You're going to see pure necessity. What you're not going to see is complacency. What you're not going to see is a lethargy in regard to this at all in any way. And I want to begin by taking an Acts chapter 8. This is what we read. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert And that road is what they say is that that's the road just goes, if you've been to Israel, this will make sense, but you just go straight to Hebron and cut straight across to Gaza, straight west. So this is the road. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, here's the thing about this. This particular, he's a Gentile, okay? And this particular Gentile, we are, this is, we're really blessed with a treasure trove of riches here in regard to details. And the first thing you need to understand is he is a eunuch. Very important. You want to draw out the power of this story? Understand this man's a eunuch. He's been emasculated, okay? And It's not surprising to see this eunuch in such a high position of power because it was common for eunuchs to to possess high positions of power because they were thought trustworthy. And typically they would sit in the role that they would take on a king's household, including his harem. Being being over that, he could be trusted, obviously, being a eunuch. Something that's interesting about eunuchs is the Torah addresses it. 
And you go to Deuteronomy 23, and what it talks about is they are not to enter the assembly of the Lord. They're forbidden. Okay? The eunuchs are forbidden from entering into the assembly. But what's interesting about this particular eunuch is that he is a God-fearer. He is not a proselyte. He would have had to have been circumcised, gone through mikvah. He was not a proselyte. Obviously, he couldn't be circumcised, being emasculated. But he is a God-fearer. And this is critical to all of this. He is seeking. He went to Yerushalayim for one purpose. He wants to worship the God of Israel. He had turned his heart to the Lord God. Okay, so, so with these details, let's continue on in the story. And this eunuch was returning to, to his place and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Yeshayahu Hanavi, Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. Now, you got to see Romans 8 is just so beautiful when Paul says, God works all things together for good to those that love him. This is an amazing thing because precisely as this eunuch is reading the prophet Isaiah, the Lord is sending, exactly at this moment, he is sending Philip to go overtake the chariot. You cannot make this stuff up. Now, when you get here, you're going to see how amazing this is. So as we continue in verse 30, so Philip ran to him and heard, he heard him. This is what's amazing. He's reading scripture out loud. He doesn't care what people think. Could you imagine being in a coffee house, sitting with your Bible open, and you're just reading scripture out loud? It's not going to go over well. I'm just saying. But here you have this man. He doesn't care. He's not a Jew. He's, a, he's not just a Gentile. But he's a eunuch, and I'll take it a step further. If you read Josephus' writings, just to put this into context, he speaks very unfavorably of the eunuchs. They were anathema to the Jewish people, okay? And that stems from, you know, the reality of Torah. All right, so Philip runs to him, heard him reading the prophet Isaiah, and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? This man is filled with humility and honor and integrity. You can see it in his, his, his rebuttal. And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, you got to see that the whole event is insane because no Jew in their right mind would ever, much less sit with a Gentile, let alone a eunuch Gentile. It's not going to happen. Philip would never do something like this unless the Holy Spirit instructed him. And so here you have an authentic move of the Spirit, and you're looking at this, and this, is, this whole thing is unusual, all right? Now we continue in verse 32, and this is what we read. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth, and humiliation, his justice, was taken away. And who will declare his generation? His life is taken from the earth. You cannot make this up, Isaiah 53 one of the most predominant messianic passages in all of scripture, a passage that has brought more Jewish people into the faith than virtually any other passage in the Hebrew Bible. And here's this eunuch, he just happens to be reading this part that talks about the death and the resurrection of the Messiah Yeshua. Oh, and it's at that exact time that the spirit drives Philip to overtake the chariot to go preach the gospel to him. Absolutely amazing. Now, continuing on, so the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, 
Of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? It's fascinating because this is even debated today where your, your, your anti-missionaries will come to this table and say, well, you know, the passage isn't about Yeshua. It's not about a Messiah. It's about Israel. Even though there's so many problems with that, it's not even funny. But we can still, it was debated about this guy in his mind. It was debating the issue. Then Philip opened his mouth and listened to this and beginning at this scripture, preached Yeshua to him. He began in Isaiah 53, Philip, and he preaches the gospel to this eunuch, to this Gentile eunuch. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Luke doesn't record the details of this conversation. Maybe somebody's going to tell us what those details are. But, <laughs> okay, so Luke doesn't record the details of the conversation. And, and it's one of those things that, you know, and I know I'm not the only person, but I know there's many of you, you come across a passage in Scripture, and you're like, you want to know more. You wanted to be there right at that moment to, to know, you want to be that fly in the wall, to hear what was, gonna, what was transpiring. Fortunately for us, even though, even though we did not get to see all of the details that took place, we do have some details. And we can extrapolate these details based upon the eunuch's response to Philip. And this is where things get really, really powerful. And so this is what we read, and we get into verse 36. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Now, think about this. The context is Philip is preaching the elementary principles. He is preaching the gospel to this eunuch. And we know for a fact one of the things that he conveyed was that he needed to be baptized. He conveyed the urgency to baptism because here you have this eunuch. He's receiving the gospel. He's hearing it from Philip. And what is he doing? He's looking for water. He's so convicted in heart. He's so overwhelmed with this urgency to go out and be baptized. He wants to do it immediately. And he actually asks, what hinders me from being baptized? Now, here's what's interesting. Philip is going to give the requirements for baptism. Something specifically that could hinder us from being baptized. And this is what we read in, in uh, Acts 8.37. Then Philip said, if, if you believe with all your heart, you may. See, this is a requirement. This is the key requirement. The, the, the eunuch sees water. He's felt the conviction. He has to be baptized. He needs to do it immediately. What hinders me? Philip's response is, if you believe. Now, the question is, believe what? What is it that we're supposed to be? Pay very close attention to what we read. And he answered and said, I believe that Yeshua Mashiach is the Son of God. It is very important. He did not offer this title on his own. We know that this is part of the details that Philip had conveyed when he was expressing the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of Yeshua. What he conveyed to him is that Yeshua is the son of God. He's not just a Messiah. There were many Messiahs in Israel's history. Many anointed ones that had come and gone. Yeshua is more than that. He's more than an anointed one. He is the son of God. And I want you to consider 
When Yeshua was driven out into the wilderness, Satan confronts him. He goes to war against Yeshua. And what was the one title Satan went after? He said to Yeshua, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. If you are the son of God, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. He'll give his angels charge of you. Think about that. Son of God, in the conversation, Yeshua to his apostles, who do men say that I am? Well, some people say, you know, you're John the Baptist. You know, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And his response is, who do you say that I am? Peter responds, you are the Mashiach, the son of the living God. This is huge. This is how we define our faith, by God having his son, by God sending his son. This is what separates us from the world. His only son. And so the the eunuch, he confesses with his mouth, I believe Yeshua is the son of God. And what happens? Then we go. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. With that confession, if you believe in your heart, and the death, the resurrection, that he is the son of God. And he wasted no time doing it commands the chariot to stop. This is a powerful example of how you you notice you didn't see any deliberation in regard to, uh, to the eunuch getting baptized. Absolutely none. You know, there's no lethargy. There's no, there's no complacency. There's none of this. There's one last bit that I think is pretty incredible about this story. He began preaching the gospel to this eunuch In Isaiah 53, if you just continue a couple minutes in reading, and that's not hyperbole, you just read for a couple more minutes as you get into this passage, you come to the following passage. Now put this into context, and this is how God speaks to you. I share this with you because you need to understand God will speak to you in supernatural ways if you would just open this book up and read it for yourself. And he will speak to you individually. Look at what we read just a few minutes as we get in past Isaiah 53. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Oh, nor let the eunuch say, here I am a dry tree. You want to talk about literally the Lord speaking directly to his heart? He would have come up, he would have literally read this. It would have floored him. He knows who he is. He knows what the Jewish people think of him. He completely understands this. Verse 4, For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Can you imagine this eunuch who's seeking God, who wants to be saved, being offered the waters of hope to being offered a new identity, a place as a child of Abraham and Sarah, and it's right in the word. And as he's going through this, can you imagine how that would have overwhelmed him? I'm going to tell you, you pick up the Bible and you read it with that same heart and God will speak to you that way, that powerful. Let me take you to another story. And this particular story is the Apostle Paul, it's his personal ministry. It's his personal testimony, I should say. He's given an opportunity to address his own brethren. 
This is not about Gentiles. They're addressing his, his, his Jewish brethren. He's gotten a crowd because he's caused a lot of havoc. And he begins by telling them, hey, I'm in his own Hebrew language. Hey, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia. I studied at the feet of Gamliel, one of the most uh, revered rabbis of the day. I, I, in the strictness of the fathers, I watched the strictness of Torah. I have kept it. I've persecuted the church. He's sharing his testimony with them. He's going through all of that at the front end, but then he gets to the crescendo of the testimony, and that was his whole event, his whole experience on his road to Damascus, where the glory of the Lord shone so brightly, the glory of Yeshua shone, shone so great and knocked him off his animal, and he goes blind. He had to be led by the hand of the men that were traveling with him to Damascus. Well, in this process, the Lord comes to a man known as Ananias, and he commands Ananias, go to this man, for he is my servant. Tell him what he needs, what I'm going to do through him. And so the apostle Paul, he, with this crowd of Jewish people, he is sharing his testimony. And we pick it up here in verse 12. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man, according to the Torah, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. And he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. Verse 15. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now, this is his own testimony. The moment Ananias comes to you, tells him the Lord has called him into the ministry, he is healed. Ananias says, why are you waiting? He doesn't say, you know, if, you know, if the mood grabs you at some point, you might want to consider being baptized. not necessary. It's not important, but you know, it's a good thing to do. This is what we're all doing these days is an outward expression of faith. He doesn't say anything like that. He comes out. Why are you waiting? Arise, be baptized. And again, what, do you, what is the point of this baptism? Wash away your sins. And again, it's not that the water is taking dirt off. It's that I'm going into these waters of hope of the death and resurrection of the Messiah, Yeshua, that testimony, and it washes away my sins. But this is what we're commanded to do. It's not a suggestion. You can't find it being presented as a suggestion in any way at any level, anywhere in the New Testament. And you certainly don't find it presented that way before the New Testament, getting into Jewish tradition. Let me take you to one more story. And this story is in Acts 10. Peter, like Philip, who was before him, was commanded to go to Gentiles. These are Gentile converts, okay? And so he, he presents himself. He has this vision. Most of you know the story in Acts 10. It's, it's, there's a lot of drama. Uh, Cornelius gets a vision. Peter gets a vision. And what the Lord is doing is he's bringing these two together. He wants Peter to go to Cornelius to tell him what he is supposed to do. So, Peter is coming to Cornelius for this purpose to preach the gospel. And this is what we read. We're going to pick it up. He is literally preaching. Now, Cornelius has called his friends, his family. This is, this is a big to-do. And they're all present to hear the words that Peter has to speak. And listen to what Peter says. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. 
While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Now we continue on in, in verse 45. And those of the circumcision who believed, they were what? They were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Now, you got you to think about it. See, the, the, the reason they were astonished, because the Jews, first of all, they were still not in a place where we're going to go to Gentiles. In fact, because of this episode, later on, Peter is going to get reamed out because he went into Gentiles and ate with them, and the word has gone out. And he actually gets rebuked by his own brethren. How dare you do this? This is not forbidden by law. You know, what, righteous, what, what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has uh, light with darkness? What fellowship has Christ with Belial? None. None. It absolutely has none. The, the Israel has always been called out to be separate and holy. And so this whole event is crazy enough. That they're being gone, that they have to go to these Gentiles. But in addition to that, these Jews are watching the Holy Spirit fall down upon them. They're in awe, especially. Now consider this, keep the context. What happened in Acts 2? Shavuot, right? Pentecost, the Jews from the diaspora, they are meeting in Jerusalem and all these Jews from around the world and they witness the Holy Spirit fall upon the Jewish people. That in itself was an awesome thing. That left them mystified. But to do that event to Gentiles, unthinkable. So you want to talk about being baffled at what they're seeing. Now we continue. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water? That these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Now I, gotta, I just got to say this. Can anyone forgive water? You, you think in modern day terms, in evangelical terms today, man, if you're anointed with the Holy Spirit, who cares? Who cares about baptism? Is not the Holy Spirit the proof of our inheritance? Is that not the final goal? And I would tell you, absolutely. See, this situation is completely different. It's out of the order. In the sense, it's normally you get baptized and post, there's an anointing of the Holy Spirit. You know, there's so many unique times in Scripture where you have things that happen out of the ordinary. Specific men in Scripture not dying. And yet, Scripture, the general term is everyone dies. It's a point for man to die once, but after this, the judgment. Well, this is the situation we have here. We have something very unusual. And the first thing out of Peter's mouth, can anyone forbid water. Do you want to feel the weight of baptism? How important baptism, even after they received, after they've received the promise of the Holy Spirit, this is what Peter is concerned about. Now that's a great weight. Now this is not something that is just good to do. It's commanded. In fact, what does it say when Peter goes, he goes on and says, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Yeshua. Then they asked him to stay a few days. You think we should be putting some weight on this topic? Absolutely. It merits it. In fact, looking at the early church out of the New Testament age, as you turn the, the, the centuries, get into the early second century, one of the documents we looked at was the Didache. You remember that? I want to take you back to the Didache. I want to show you something they say in regard to just how important baptism really is. This is what it says. But let no one eat or drink 
of your Eucharist. And, and that is, don't go Catholic on me just yet. In the, in the sense, we think Eucharist, you just think Catholic Church. Um, the, the, the term is Greek, Eucharista, okay? This is a term, it simply means thanksgiving. That's what the term means, okay? And what it's referring to specifically here, and we could look at the broader context, I'm not going to show you that, but Passover, it's referring to the body and the blood of Yeshua. Do this in remembrance of me. This is what's being talked about here, and you can go you know, look at this for yourself, but this is what it's referring to, Passover. Now, I want to show you this, but let no one eat or drink of the Eucharist or Passover being, coming into the body and blood of the Lord, except those who have been baptized in the name of the Lord. Except those who have been baptized in the name of the Lord. And it goes on, says, for the Lord has also spoken concerning this, do not give what is holy to the dogs. You want to talk about a weight of emphasis. So when you go into the Torah and you look at Exodus 12, you will see the strangers, the foreigners, the aliens are not allowed to participate in the Passover unless there is full conversion. Absolutely amazing. And here, as we come to the Didache, the turn of the century, if you will, looking at the early second century, they're laying out these ground rules. Nobody's going to do this with us. Nobody's going to join with us. And this fellowship of this meal, of this sanct- the sanctity of this meal, unless they are baptized. Now that's a weight. So there's, there's no complacency. There's nothing but urgency. We will close with this verse. And Mark 16, verse 16, Yeshua's words, he who believes in me and is baptized will be saved. He who believes in me and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. That's heavy. And so, you know, one of the things, you know, I've taught on baptism so many times and I've had so many discussions on baptism. One of the things that always comes back to me, and I'm going to save you time. This is why I'm doing this. Well, Danny, are you saying if I don't get baptized, I'm not saved? Well, first of all, I'm not saying anything. I'm showing you what scripture says. I'm showing you the urgency that is placed on it. I'm showing you the fact that it is commanded. So if you have the heart and say, well, I know it's commanded, but I'm not going to do it, good luck. You know, I would not want to be in your shoes. But if you're to say, well, you know, what, what happens? It's like, it's like the go-to. What about the thief on the cross? He wasn't baptized. Yes, are there unique circumstances? He's having a deathbed confession. Is that how we are to live our lives? So is that the precedent? That we should, oh, you know what? I, well, let's, let's live like hell now. And when we're, you know, dying of cancer, when we're doing whatever, we're in a car accident, we're bleeding out. Oh, at that moment, then we're going to confess the Lord. Do you think you're in a state of salvation? That's crazy if that's your precedent. You know, if the eunuch got out of the chariot, fell, hit his head, cracked his head open and died, yes, I do believe he was saved. No, he didn't get baptized at that time. Yes, I believe he was saved. But there's, there's one thing I know. As you go through scripture, this is one of the heaviest things that is laid out for us. And the importance and the urgency of it And only the enemy would come in and try to take that urgency, take that heaviness from it and just dumb it down just to be something that, you know, it's a good Christian thing to do, but it's not necessary. That's demonic. That is not what the scripture says. And again, don't believe me. Go home and just open up your Bible and say, you know what? I'm going to study this out for myself. I need to look at this. 